So here we are in a system not designed for women, not designed for millennials, not designed for inclusion. A system that is finally changing. Let's get familiar. Let's talk about business. Let's talk about lifestyle. Let's talk about womanhood. I'm Leslie Gray, bringing you passionate, informed guests to talk about millennial women building wealth, power, and influence in our modern era. The future for women and wealth is brighter than ever. Welcome to Love and Dividends. Quote, you can burn our districts to the ground. But do you see that? Fire is catching. And if we burn, you burn right with us. End quote. That is Katniss Everdeen, character from the Hunger Games Young Adult book series, as portrayed by Jennifer Lawrence in the four Hunger Games movies. I love this idea of people coming at the character with the pitchforks and with the fire and the character saying, come at me. You want to burn me down? I live in fire. And it's catching. And if you're going to try to burn me down, you're going to burn right here with me. A bit of a darker tone, a darker sentiment, a fiery sentiment. But of course, you know, on the Love and Dividends podcast, we are all for female heroines rising like the phoenixes they are and coming out of the ashes. I am feeling that energy. I hope you are too. We as a country here in Canada, we as a province are finally starting to come out of this pandemic, out of our lockdown. It finally seems like there's an end in sight. I know our listeners in the U.S. have probably been there for a moment. Please tell us what the future's like. But over here, it feels like we are in that darkest before the dawn moment. A lot has been destroyed, but as we know, whenever something burns, the soil is rich and new growth can begin. And I believe that that is the season we find ourselves in. Here, coming to the end of the pandemic, coming to the end of this season too, not quite, with a few more episodes left. Coming to what feels like a new day and a new morning. When this pandemic started in March of 2020, as mentioned, Aries Fiery Woman, I was coming on to my birthday, and a friend of mine did the thing. I hope you guys have girlfriends like this too. This is a very girly thing, as I understand it. I understand uh, our male listeners do not relate to this and would not do this for each other, but one fun thing that millennial girls do. Maybe your friends don't do this. Maybe this is just, maybe this just says a little something about me. But my dear friend who I spent most of the pandemic with flipped me a photo of myself. We, uh, we had gone to camp together. So it was a photo from our youth from when I was about 15 years old, uh, saying, can I post this on Instagram to wish you a happy birthday? It's that thing you do where it's a photo that might be unflattering, so you ask the person's permission. Anyone? Maybe not. 
I loved this photo. It was a photo of me getting ready for an event called Solo Night. Very much a premonition, a prescription, very much foreshadowing the next year and several months of my life, Solo Night. Solo night at the camp I worked at uh, was at my favorite activity called Woodcraft. It was like a camp craft skills, a lot of nature skills. Big part of it was building fires, so that fire metaphor comes in. And at Woodcraft, the highest award was the Woodsman. And one of the big elements of that award was this solo night. You would go into the woods, but nothing but the clothes you could wear. No watch, no way to tell time. You would go in that evening, sleep overnight. The rules were come down when the sun comes up. The Other than the killing of each other, it is truly the hunger games of that camp experience. So I was in my warmest clothes because even in July, it gets very cool in the evenings. I was in a bug net. I was in a toque, which is the Canadian version of a wool hat. And it was right before I was about to trek up into the woods overnight. I loved that she sent this sort of in March. Uh, It's when we were going into this. I was living alone at the time and, you know, was very nervous about sort of being isolated. And I remembered that time, that solo night. Even though it was just one evening, it felt like a very long night. And it was a very good experience. I, I honestly wish every camper could have. I don't know that I slept that much I do know I very much connected with nature. By the end, I felt very, very part of the woods. And what I will never forget is the feeling I had when I saw the sun come up. It was a feeling of achievement, relief. I did it. And as we come to month six, sort of 6 a.m. of 2021, this last little bit of the pandemic, that's where I feel like we're at. We're at those moments just before the sun comes up, just before this night alone in the woods ends for many of us. At the same night that a bunch of campers would sleep alone in the woods, myself included, a number of other ones on the lower awards, like before you do the solo night alone, you might do one where you get to stay with a friend and you'd bring sleeping bags and materials to build a shelter. We had some of our favorite counselors in training created their own award where they went up and stayed in a tent to get a sort of junior award they had created. I love creativity. I'm always here for it. One thing that happened later as I was a counselor and sort of monitored these things was we would always send campers with a whistle. I had a whistle that you could blow in an emergency if if anything happened. And over the years, although all of the campers who attempted always get their award and they always made it through the hard part, but a number of campers would blow their whistle at four or five or six in the morning and we'd run up and and get them and bring them down and it wasn't a problem and they'd done the hard part. But I always felt so sad for them that they didn't get to have that big, beautiful sunrise moment. And I just wonder how many people in sort of the tail end, the April, May, June parts of this pandemic have done that. I've called it quits. I've had it. I've had it with this person. 
I, I'm leaving them. I've, I've had it with this thing. And while that's completely valid, this dark solo night truly is temporary. And we truly are coming to the end. And there has been, in many ways, a great destruction. And that's what I want to talk about this episode. It's not bright, bubbly, cheery. Fire, of course, being the warm place we can come around and sing about and have as a campfire and roast marshmallows, but can be a true destroyer as well. And that's what today's episode is about. Not actually about fire. Not actually about destruction. It is with Eva Sachs, a divorce financial specialist. She comes on to talk about gray divorce. It's something that's come up recently with Bill and Melinda Gates. I don't obviously know the details of their divorce, but we talk about wealth. Both of them come up all of the time for their work, for the Gates Foundation, for having a ton of financial means. Very interesting to see them separate. Very interesting to contemplate what that looks like. And very interesting to see this sort of rise of divorce. We started talking about it here on the podcast about a year ago with our favorite collaborative lawyer, Alexa Turner, on our episode Divorce in the Time of Corona. And I think it's interesting to talk about how people handle these sort of meltdown, end game, start from scratch, you know, eventually Katniss Everdeen style, perhaps rising from the ashes, that girl on fire. But how many people get perhaps intentionally destructive? One of the things Eva comments on is when dividing up assets or dealing with the finances, she knows that when, you know, perhaps one of the people say, I don't want the house, but I sure don't want them to have it. That's a tricky place to start negotiating from. We talk about how these things start, how they're dealt with, and we really get into women and money. I love her story that she got this expertise starting as a financial planner, having many of her female clients go to this and and just being so embarrassed about their knowledge or lack of knowledge about finances in general, but specifically their own finances, how helpful and empowered they feel when they learn more. And how she really wanted to be able to help people. And I I love anyone whose passion or purpose is driven from wanting to serve and that service level leadership. Again, it's it's not a lighthearted tone, but it's an interesting one. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Lots to unpack. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Wishing you well as we step into the final hours before the great dawn that should be the roaring 20s that follows this horrific pandemic. That's my hope for all of you. And I will end this intro as I started with a fire quote. It is by one of my favorite authors, the brilliant Anais Nin, who wrote, quote, I only believe in fire. Life. Fire. Being myself on fire, I set others on fire. So there is no death, only fire and life. End quote. Enjoy. (laughs) 
Hi, Eva. Thank you so much for joining us on the Love and Dividends podcast. Well, really nice to be here, Leslie. Thanks. So you are a divorce financial specialist. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Very intriguing. That, what does that mean, right? It's what a, does that mean? <laughs> so uh, I'm a certified financial planner initially, but I'm also a certified divorce financial analyst and a chartered financial divorce specialist, you know, all fancy words. But what that really means is I deal with the financial issues in separation and divorce, which is slightly different uh, from what lawyers traditionally would be doing. I mean, they do some of that, but they don't have the the specialty and the uh, experience to deal with more complex issues and to really have discussions around really future financial planning in terms of what's going to happen to a couple, to an individual once they have their separation agreement in place. Right. I love your website, Love and Money, kind of like Love and Dividends. So we're very well branded. And I like it says, protect the romance by taking care of the finance. Exactly. Well, again, in today's world, people are much more pragmatic. They're, they're much more practical, I think, based on you know what you're doing and the information that you're trying to get out and the interest. Uh, certainly for females, my experience uh, tells me that females are really much more interested in finances. Certainly somebody that's going through separation and divorce will come to me whether they're happy or sad because the divorce is happening. So it depends. But many of them are feeling very guilty that they haven't paid attention to family finances. And that troubles them more than even the issues. How could I have allowed myself to be left in the dark when it comes to family finances. And do you find that tilts more towards your female clients than males? Absolutely. Twofold, women are just more open in uh, sharing that information and admitting to it. Do they understand the difference between family finances? And that has more to do with budgeting, planning, who makes decisions, you know, versus the um, details around uh, investments. And if women tend to back off away from that to a degree still, they feel that they're not going to be negotiating on an even level because they don't have that information and knowledge, which is not necessarily the case. I like that. And it's a common theme you've brought up, Eva, that we've heard from a few guests of whether it's that women are less informed about finances, possibly because there's not a space or the tone of it. I thought, you know, that's usually why I say I started this podcast. Some of the tone of financial advice just felt a little bit off, I think, especially for young professional women. But the flip side that I've heard a few times was that men can be in the dark too, and there can just be less of an ownership. And actually, a lot of my male friends have sort of confirmed that being like, yeah, we'll be in the same meetings, also not knowing what's going on. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you'd always, you'd always uh, do an RSP, TFSA. And I think to, for a lot of people when they, they, you know, certainly that my female clients come to me and say, well, my, my spouse negotiates for a living. And you don't. If you have kids, you're negotiating every day, right? So I think there's a fallacy there. Somehow they go brain dead. I'm going to say certainly when they're walking to a lawyer's office when they're divorcing to a degree, but it's the same kind of attitude they might have when they're walking into um, a financial advisor's uh, office or having those kinds of discussions where you know, they politely nod and they say, I get this, but they really don't. I mean, a lot of my clients come to me and and they've been working with lawyers and they've had all sorts of calculations done. And I go through them, I'll go through budgets that have been done, for instance. And I say, do you understand this? Do you understand what's going on? Not really. 
What would be some of the key themes you see or key things they wish they'd known earlier? Is it as basic as just sort of budget? Well, budget is big, right? Because nobody has had to track, but in lots of cases, they haven't had to track a budget. I mean, one client uh, gave me the perfect answer when I said, well, do not budget for anything. And she said, well, Eva, I've never bounced a check in my life. Totally. I think so. Why would I need to? Like, which makes perfect sense. On the other hand, you have people that are down to the penny. They know exactly dollar in, dollar out. So those are those two extremes. Uh, the other thing I think is um, just general financial knowledge, right? And understanding and under, trying to understand, certainly from a divorce perspective, why are they asking us for all this information, right? And, and where is it all going to end up? And then the last thing I think is still is just having access to information, you know? I can't access certain things. It takes a long time to find things. I, you know, uh, I don't have a password. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I don't know that it's gotten a lot better, even though it's more readily available. I think sometimes the abundance of information makes it hard to sort through the noise, you know, because there's so much that can be debilitating in its own way. I agree. I think certainly with something like separation and divorce, I mean, if, if right. almost percent of people that are married go through separation and divorce. Wait, which, and, what is the percent right now? Well, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's reducing, right? It's less. Really? And, and part, of, part of that reduction is because when we look at stats for divorce, they don't count people that are common law living together. Ah. Uh, but the one area that there is growth in divorce is certainly people that have been married for, for a long period of time. And, you know, it's referred to as gray divorce. Yeah. Melinda yeah. Gates and Bill Gates was the, mm-hmm. is how I first heard that term. I wrote a book with a colleague of mine a couple of years ago called when Harry left Sally. That's yeah. The, so the, the reason for the growth, I would just briefly, the reason for the, the growth in gray divorce is boomers. So there's just more of us, right? So there's going to be more divorces. And the other interesting thing that we found when we were researching the book was the advent of online dating. So somebody in their fifties and sixties that was contemplating divorce. And the fear was, well, if I actually go through with this, I'll be alone. Now the option isn't necessarily that I'll be alone. Wow. And that's had impact as well. I loved your line about moms are the best negotiators. I didn't even think about that, but we just, in the last episode, we just did a two-part series about career real talk and a big thing. Like women just, the statistics will show over and over, women don't negotiate their salary. They take the first offer. They don't ask for a raise. Mm -hmm. And then we get this massive wage gap. I love the reframe of, if you are a mother, and it's so true, you are the best negotiator. The way I watch even my friends now talking to their toddlers, and they negotiate them into like everything from which shoes they're wearing. My mom also used to joke about that a lot with me when I went to law school. She's like, finally, you can fight with someone else. But I actually want to say to her, like, I bet I made you a really good negotiator. The other thing we have to recognize, certainly in separation and and divorce, is negotiating doesn't mean fighting. Yes. Yes. Say more about that. Well, you know, again, we think, you know, traditionally, um, you know, uh, how do people divorce? Each gets a lawyer and either you walk into a lawyer's office and say, okay, please do the divorce for me. And in today's world, it's different. People do want to be involved. So that mindset is no different now when we're looking at either, I'm going to say getting married and, and looking at marriage contracts or prenups or going through separation divorce. I want to be involved. So those clients, those people are wanting to get professionals not to fight, 
but just to help them negotiate and, and figure out, fine tune things and say, if this is what you want to do, how can we put this in writing? And people are very open to that. And there's more of those people out there today than ever before. So do you think this increase in involvement comes from the fact that maybe there's less shame around divorce? Is there less shame around divorce? Or is it just from, you know, people being maybe a bit more emotionally equipped? Like, where do you think this heightened involvement comes from? I think it's less shame, definitely, right? Just because there's more of it, uh, right? And I think certainly women are feeling much more empowered. People are, I think, recognizing that they have options because I know when they call me and they, they they don't realize that that even though there's so much divorce happening, um, they're still not aware that, you know, they can really, divorce has to do with negotiation. Every time I say, and you can negotiate this, you can negotiate that. Really? There's very little black and white in divorce. It's it's all open to negotiation and looking at 100%. options. 100%. By the way, listeners, that's true for most areas of your finances. There's very few things that you have to take at face value. I'm always a believer that there's always a, a deal to be made and, and never come in so strong with what you want. You're not willing to take a better deal. It's really hard to know what kind of questions to ask. And I think that's our responsibility. And I think for certainly for females, responsibility to ask questions or or to talk to somebody, at least to, to learn what questions to ask. And women are fine with asking. Women have the know-how. My encouragement would be to know it's okay for you to take up the space to do so. Now, almost a year later, what impact do you think COVID or this pandemic will have on the relationships? Do you have any thoughts on this and, and where it's going? Well, I can tell you this past year, myself included, and, and most divorce professionals that I know and I work with, we've all been very busy. Interesting. And busy. the pressure of being 24 seven in the same house, 100%. it's, you know, being home from school, if things were rocky before. So when COVID first started, I think those relationships were just, okay, let's just pause. Everybody paused as things continued to go along. And those pressures were added to, to situations. I think couples looked at this and said, COVID or not, we can't continue whether COVID has pushed people some over the edge or not. Has it given them a chance to reflect on their lives? Um, are, are these divorces, you know, as a result of COVID? Well, I think it's it's COVID has pushed them. Um, but what will happen, let's say, six months or a year from now, I think will be very interesting to look at. So if you were to speak to couples sort of at each stage, either those about to enter into a committed relationship, uh, how to approach finances at that stage, how to approach them during the committed during the marriage or committed relationship, and then how to approach them at divorce. What key piece of advice would you give for each step? Well, I think you have to you have to have a conversation, right? You have to have a conversation about attitudes around money um, that you're sharing, that you're disclosing, right? So I, I think that means sitting down and actually looking at online. Here's my bank account. Here's my line of credit. Whatever, like actually looking at those things, having a discussion on. Uh, whether they're going to be having shared accounts or keeping everything separate. Do people keep their accounts separate? It's really interesting. They Everybody has very interesting and complicated ways of, of accounts. You know, they may have two accounts and then they've got a joint account and it becomes very complicated. So sometimes when I'm working with couples, I actually ask them to sort of draw me a map of where all of that goes. And it's interesting just to see what that's like, because there is a portion of funds I'm going to say that's 
hidden to a degree or that's not accounted for. And you know, the idea is, well, that's your independent. You can use that money for anything you want. But the anything you want sometimes gets into, what do you mean you bought a sports car? Right. It, it just sometimes ticks off some sort of danger points in terms of how are they actually and really sharing their finances. Would you say you've seen a shift between couples combining their finances or not? Or would you say it's always been a spectrum of? It wow. just varies so tremendously. So it's always very surprising uh, when I speak to people and, and you know, we shouldn't make assumptions, but if you're younger, will there be more independence and in, in yeah. bank accounts and so on? Not no. necessarily. Yeah, and I'd be and, curious and what the opposite saying. end too. I, yeah, I was going to ask, and maybe, it's, I mean, I hope it's a bit premature for a lot of millennials to be getting divorced, although we might be right at that magic moment as we approach our late 30s, early 40s, mm. uh, so the older millennials anyway. Uh, but I would be curious what you're seeing with that too, because I have to say I'm, I'm surprised by how traditional a lot of family structures I know are in terms of taking names and combining things. Yeah, and, and certainly the, we made the decision that somebody's going to stay at home to take care of the kids. I won't say there's less of that, but again, in, in those discussions, you really need to have, again, more discussion of what that means. But you know, it's funny, even in business, because I'm a transactional lawyer, M&A lawyer, like I don't go to court or fight, but I will tell you working for a company that's buying another business or being purchased like a merger or an, or an acquisition, which it's almost like a marriage of companies. There's a weird amount of love and romance in there too, that when you're in there as a lawyer, be like, but have we looked at this? Have we diligence this? Have you asked this? So I'll tell you, even in business, it's hard to have those conversations sometimes. I had a situation where, you know, we were looking at this, uh, you know, keeping the house or not. And um, all the numbers indicated that she could not afford to keep the house. And bottom line in all of this was, but I don't want him to have it. Yeah. So the practical yeah. can be all there. We can run all the options, all the scenarios, all the what ifs, but that, that emotional and what you refer to even in a company, that emotional piece overrides those things. So even though we separate it all out, you, we can't leave the, the emotion out all the time. It eventually sort of slides back in. Well, and I think what a lot of people, and again, I'm not a litigator and I don't go to court, but I think what a lot of people look for in some of their legal battles is this sense of like, they got theirs, I got mine. And like the court's just not there for revenge. Like it's just, you're just never going to get validation that you were right. And that, you know, he doesn't get the house. Like, it's just, it's the wrong tool for that. I don't know if there's a right tool for it, to be honest, but I think in a lot of agreements, when you start getting around to that, like, I just want them to know that they did something wrong and here's how we're going to do that. It's like, that's not what this forum is good for. How did you get into this line of work, by the way, Eva? Well, people assume, because lots of people that go through separation and divorce then get into this kind of field. I've been married, I, I, I happily, I guess, or admit that I've been married for 45 years to the same guy. So I don't have my own horrible divorce story. But in my traditional financial planning practice, I had clients coming to see me and certainly female clients. And I had a good friend that came to see me and she wasn't a client, but she was going through separation and divorce. And we had lunch and how terrible and all, all the rest of it. And certainly not somebody, I mean, it was a big surprise to me because I thought of them as this perfect couple, perfect marriage. Uh, <clears throat> and as I walked away from lunch, I thought, 
I have to find some way of helping her. And I had years before that heard of this certification. So I thought, let me get a bit more involved just to be more informed for my financial planning clients. As I got more involved in this, realized uh, there was something there and could I turn it into a, a, a separate practice, which is what I did almost 15 years ago. I would think it would be very meaningful helping people through this potentially difficult transition or helping people not have to deal with it, perhaps with the right form of marriage contract. Have you found that to be the case? I mean, obviously 15 years. So I can relate to certainly a female, I can relate to a, you know, a mom, a business person, like all the things they, they, they go through. So I get all of that. I get the, you know, what do you mean? Somebody tells me, you know, non-discretionary spending means you can't color your hair. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't think so. Or you're foolish with money just because you want to take a, a nice vacation. Like, I don't think so. It's easy to be passionate about it. It's because I can see the growth from when they start. And with just a little bit of information that gives them confidence, because it's just building confidence too, and awareness that they can move forward and say, yeah, I got through this. And whether they were the ones that wanted the divorce or the, it happened to them. And when I see them at the end, um, it's amazing the transition that, that they go through. And it's just information and a, a patient way of saying, as opposed to saying, you don't know anything about uh, you know, finances. And I think women have been scolded about that too much. And you right? spend too much. Like, again, you I think it's been too much. Narratives you always know, like you're taking up too much space and you don't understand it. Like spend less, save more, coupon clipping, like, I mean, drives me nuts, but even today there's still, there's so much financial advice for women. That's like, here's how to save 50% on your next da da da. And like, stop buying the fancy latte and start this. And then for men, it's like invest in Bitcoin, like buy real estate, like, and you know, it's just so painful. It's like, well, one is going to lead to a lot of wealth and one is just fucking condescending. And there's, you know, there's certainly so much uh, with regards to, um, misinformation and right uh, right and, and whether it's too much information or misinformation uh and the sense of gee you really need to be an investment guru to understand things no you need to understand okay how much money is my, my how much money is my money making could it be making more you know that sense of well women are all risk adverse not the case but they're, they're given that sense of, gee, you, know, you, you can't be risky or you're not risky or you're being really foolish if you're, if you're risking on, on investments and that uh, aren't safe. That message comes early. It comes in your about mid-20s, which is like, okay, remember, you don't have that long till you know your eggs are done. So make sure you're saving for a family. Make sure you're supporting everyone. Make sure you're taking care of everyone. Nurture, nurture, nurture. And for men, the message is still build your empire, grow your empire. You know what women like? A fast car and lots of money and a big house. So go get it, tiger. Like men, it's like build, 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 power, power. And for women, it is still like, well, just be careful. Make sure you have a lot of savings. What if you don't get married and you have to do it alone? With men, it's like, like the messaging is so different and it's so painful. And I just think that's where this whole idea of risk comes in is women also aren't encouraged to take risks because it's like, you're supposed to be the nurturer, the provider, et cetera. He gets to take risks. Cause I'm sure he'll, he'll be a big provider. It'll pay off. You think with millennials, there's still the notion of uh, no matter when they get married and obviously people are getting married slightly later in life, you know, late twenties, as opposed to when I got married, which was, you know, if you were 21, you're already considered an old maid and like lost cause. Um, but 
is there that sense of I'm getting married and I'm doing that as much as I'm an independent woman, but that concept of marriage is somebody still there to take care of me. Yeah. I'd be curious whether it's, so I can't really speak to that experience as a woman. I can say the messaging I received a lot was sort of the reverse was the other end of that same coin, which was like, remember men want to take care of you. They want to feel like the provider. If you show up with this hot degree and hot law practice and big business, like they're just all going to be so scared. Men want to provide. They don't want to feel the word emasculated. I'm even hesitating to say it now, but I will. It's really, it's really interesting. And where those concepts are, are going and, and when people are getting to the stage, because we know with research, people contemplate separation and divorce for a long time, anywhere from five to nine years. Right. So it's not like suddenly, I mean, there's the audience. Really? Wait, five to nine years? Yeah. That's what a decade contemplating yeah. divorce. Yeah. Right. Cause they go to that. I call it like a cliff. They go to the edge of that cliff and then they pull back or they're at the edge of that cliff. No, the kids are still small. we got to hang in there for the kids. Right. So there's, I mean, not in all yeah. cases, but in many cases, right. Very rarely. Well, I mean, unless there's a, you know, an affair or something, you know, dramatic that happens, people contemplate divorce for, for a long, I mean, I hear that over and over again, when, when clients call me, yeah, we've been talking, we're, we're, they don't talk, we've been contemplating this for a while, right? And it disappears, and then it comes back, like, it comes, yeah, it's like this way. What do you think a- makes people finally pull the trigger and go over that cliff? Don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Something, right? Where they get Something. to the edge and they finally say, you know what? Uh, I've got to jump no matter what, which is terrifying. Or I now have a parachute and it's okay to jump. So That's what that parachute might be, it might be kids are already gone. Mm, parachute. Right? Or it could be uh, my career is moving along really well. So really from a financial perspective, I really think I can be doing this. Maybe it's an age thing. I keep waiting right? Mm -hmm. Less chance of me, I'm going to say maybe for somebody younger, right? If I wait till I'm, you know, if I'm 30 and I wait till I'm 40, what's the chance of me meeting somebody else and remarrying? You know, the longer I wait, the harder that might be. I don't know. Although, you know, the great divorce thing and online dating has changed that. I have a client now who's 82, 82. And she's just said, that's it. I just can't take it anymore. Wow. So wow. was there something there? I, you know, I, I, I don't know well enough, right? Because I deal with the finances. So I, I very rarely, unless somebody offers to tell me the right. reasons, I don't really ask because it's, it's not that relevant. And I want to keep things more on a pragmatic perspective. Why I don't know it? if I do. I feel like I would be so curious. I mean, I'm a podcast host. I ask questions. I feel like I'd be like, tell me every detail, <laughs> especially this 82 year old. I'm like, what happened? I'm assuming your name's Mabel. Mabel, <laughs> tell me everything. Uh, maybe someday I'll have lunch with her and, and, and get into that. Yeah. I, you know, that's probably more professional uh, of you <laughs> to do it that way. That's right. So it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see what pushes somebody. Right. But I may hear that more often than not. It's, it's not, you know, even though it's, you know, let's say somebody had an affair, that was the main reason, but other things have been happening over this and, and money's a big issue, obviously. Right. right. Either somebody's yeah. a spender or not, or they're, 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 they're controlling from a financial perspective, which is shocking in today's world. Financial but, abuse is, is definitely real. Very yeah, real. Yeah. It's shocking that again, how do people, I'm going to say women in more cases than not allow themselves to be in that kind of uh, vulnerable situation, right? They have access to nothing. 
they have, we start looking at assets. Nothing has been put in their name or jointly. Nothing. A hundred percent. I think the first sign of of any form of abuse, specifically, I mean, physical is the easiest one to spot, but emotional or financial, at least they say the first sign is that isolation, that pulling you away from your support systems, pulling away from your resources. Financial abuse is, you know, from what I've seen more and more is often coupled with that emotional Mm -hmm. or physical abuse, especially for women, but happens to men too. You know, when you talk about do women expect men to take care of them financially, one thing that has come to mind that's not often talked about is that there is such a single tax. It's gender neutral, but the reality is living in Toronto, you're paying double the rent. You're not splitting it. You're paying double the mortgage. You're paying double your Netflix account, gifts for various events, that vacation. And You know, I think there's a myth that, well, there's two of us and it costs twice as much. It's very rarely is an expense actually double, even groceries. It's easier to buy for more people than one. Like, take the reverse of that when you're divorcing. And I work on post divorce budgets. You know, how do we estimate that? Your groceries aren't going to be cut in half, right? Mm. Yeah, can you speak to this? I I work with, I start with uh, what I call lifestyle analysis. So it's basically a a real summary of, of what lifestyle costs when somebody was together. So we actually go through bank accounts, credit card statements, and detail absolutely everything. So the best example I can give you is in the sheets that I had, we've got one line for pet expenses. And a client called me and said, I need a bit more room for that. Well, what do you mean? Well, I've got, well, pet expenses includes, well, I get special dog food. So that's not part of groceries. I've got vet bills. I've got grooming. I've got, you know, uh, boarding when we're away. And then he's got special medications and stuff. So can I detail all of that? Okay, great. Like, okay, you really want to understand your budget. Thank you very much. But so those are realities, um, you know, um, you know, so trying to, to really get it's a big picture sense of, of lifestyle. And for a lot of people, it's also a way of saying, you know, looking at things and saying, okay, I really am spending this. And for some people, it's a bit of a shock. I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of budgets. I think like anything you underestimate and then you spend more and then you're like, screw it. I'm throwing out the whole thing. Like, so I think in that, just that mentality, budgets don't always work. But my biggest reason I think everyone should put together their spend and their budget at any stage, married, single, whatever, is you will find expenses in there that you'll be like, what the heck? I'm either canceling the subscription I never use. I just have to get over it. Or I'm renegotiating that especially telecom is a great one to renegotiate. So certainly with divorce, and I'm going to say even in in getting married, you should be tracking that spending for, it's not fun, but you track that spending for a period of time. I think it's also so that you can make sure your spending aligns with your values. I think that's the most important thing. And values with your spouse, right? And that's why I think that should be your shared values, right? So even those, even if you have separate accounts and saying, okay, you're allowing for, um, you know, discretionary spending, right? He doesn't have to know everything I'm spending, but to, there's no harm in sharing that. I think that's where a lot of, uh, actually I can't speak for men, but especially women get scared of budgets because there's like, especially some female products get sort of like, oh, your shoes or your, your purse. But, you know, I had a friend of mine say to me as they were getting into more serious relationship, like, I don't want him to know that I buy these purses, these high-end purses, even though it's completely her own money, her own profession, 
they're really nice. You could actually resell them for a lot. I actually think a lot of fashion is a better investment than the like so-called sports car. And another friend of mine was talking about like the coffee grind she's buying. And yeah, it's almost like the dog food where it's outside the grocery bill because it's high end and it's, again, she's a professional, makes her own money. I think that's where people get stuck on budgets because they're like, should I be doing this? There seems to be a prescription of what to spend your money on. And my view yeah, I'm not into budgets for this reason. It's really more having a look to make sure what you're spending on aligns, that you're not still on that coffee subscription after you've decided you don't want to have too much caffeine. Like that's the balance. And a, and a sense of trust, I think, in a relationship mm-hmm. to be able to say, you know, I made the judgment call that I needed these shoes, whatever the yeah. price is. And that your spouse would say, okay, I trust your judgment in that call. I think the reverse of that is the sort of couple slights where it's like, you can't go to this music festival because you, you know, and I can't go to this thing. And we both just sit here telling each other what they can't do. I mean, that to yeah. me seems as a single person, that to me seems like a nightmare. And then you say that builds up over a number of years, you know, after a while, and then we wonder why, oh, gee, I've been thinking of separating because that's going to grind on you. After <laughs> that's where the five to nine years is. Okay. Right? Got it. It's going to grind on you. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Do you love our podcast art? I'm actually obsessed with it. It was created for us by a very talented local artist right here in Toronto named Claire Fang. And due to popular request, we're making it available to you. Check out our website, loveanddividends.com to get your very own custom Love and Dividends swag. So even as the host of a financially focused podcast, I am constantly confusing these financial terms. What I did for myself was create a handy little cheat sheet to keep everything clear. And now I'm sharing it with you. I hope it will be a helpful tool as you tune in regularly to our show. I don't love the term cheat, but I love the idea of a cheat sheet. Sign up for our mailing list at loveanddividends.com to get a free copy of my beautiful Love and Dividends cheat sheet emailed right to you. So what does wealth mean to you? Wealthy from a, I'm going to say more of a relationship perspective from, you know, good family, health, you know, we're wealthy with all of those things, you know, money at the end of the day. Um, Richard, Richard and I have a conversation every once in a while, and then we stop it because there are a lot of different things. His, his family was had a number of different businesses. My family was involved in different businesses. So we had different business opportunities, right? It's, mm. uh, and we sometimes go back to what if, mm. right? What if we had done this? What if we had done that? We could have done that. You know, we had an opportunity. We didn't do it. And then we go crazy and say, no, no, we can't go there. Because if we go there, then that that would then lead to if we only done this, this, and this, we may be wealthy or wealthier. But we might not have had all the things that are meaningful to us. Well, or just we would have been wealthier. But let's let's just not go there. Let's just not (laughs) do it. It's like, okay, it's it's too late. Yeah. So reflecting back. Oh, that's the whole. Actually, that's a question I heard recently. I think so good is do you believe in regrets? And it's an interesting question because some people are like, yeah, you know, it's important to learn from your mistakes. And others are like, no, no regrets. Don't go there, man. Not helpful. Just get in that spiral. So many different paths we could have gone along um, and how successful or not. But many of them, I mean, we'd like to believe they could have been. So then why didn't we do it? So, yeah, we just don't go there. 
Well, that leads nicely that given that money is all about compounding gains over time, what is something you wish you had known or done sooner with your finances? This is our, I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger question. I wish you would have started investing much earlier in life. Mm. I think, again, we were younger, you know, okay, we bought our first house. Yeah, that was a big deal. But doing more uh, on the investing side or more, a bit more awareness on the investing side um, at that very early stage, maybe in the first five years of our, our, our marriage, I mean, different things were going on. It, you know, again, Richard was involved in a family business. So was I. So we had looked to that as sort of a big deal and hadn't paid as much attention as we should have probably to, you know, personal and, and financial investing. Uh, what advice do you have for someone just starting out in your area? So it could either be someone starting out as a financial advisor or starting out in the field of divorce financial consulting, or it could be someone else, someone starting out, you know, with getting maybe their finances together in preparation for a relationship, whichever way you want to go with this. It could be one of your clients starting out or, or someone starting out on your career path. Well, starting off on my career path, um, I'm going to say as a, as a more traditional financial advisor, sure. you keep the conversation simple, right? Oh. Keep the conversation simple. Um, uh, what has been a silver lining for you of 2020 and now well into 2021, but sort of the pandemic silver lining, one positive thing that's come out of it for you? Oh, well, so that's an easy question. So so creating uh, love and money. And so our, our modern yeah. marriage contract. So working with two uh, fabulous um uh, young lawyers, uh, and we just connected because of COVID. And as, as we had conversations uh, about uh, our clients and what was happening in life and so on, and we met over a drink uh, on March 9th. And I think COVID lockdown started like that week. Yep. So that was our first conversation. And so we're now at the stage where we're ready to officially launch the site, um, we hope, by the end of June. Whoa. Well, you have to keep me and us posted on it. We'll, of course, link to that site in our show notes. I've got two grown-up sons. And so one of them, both of them are married, but one was buying a house. I didn't really suggest a prenup to them. They sort of thought of that on their own and uh, had a, a, a contract drawn up. And then and, and, and my older son did not. So it was interesting to see that. And they're very much alike. So interesting to see how they um, they both approached this and, and what my thoughts were on on either one. In their millennials, Jonathan's 35, 36, and his, his wife now is 35, 34. So trying to get their comments on things. And they, they thought very few of their friends were were creating prenups or marriage contracts. Oh, yeah. No, I The only people I know doing marriage contracts, I mean, this just anecdotally in my circle would be anyone with like family money. Yeah. Like really, it's only there if it's money. But if it's money you've built together, I would guess they're more popular for people doing and perhaps a second marriage or who have seen it unfold. But I think most people still think our, they're... Our, you know, our thoughts were, and again, that's why we wanted to come up with a... Uh, I don't agree with that, by the way. I yeah. think it's great they're getting marriage contracts. I mean, I... Well, apologize. but I think a big part of it is Jonathan also said, yeah, but we can't afford a lot of this. Now I was working with a, a colleague right. of mine. And so she said, sure, I'll do this for them for a, a reasonable fee. Sure. So that sort of motivated them as well. But I think one of the things we realized is that we had to present something fairly simple and we're positioning it now to certainly people that are either getting married or, or buying a house together and not getting married or the bank of mom and dad, right? Where totally. parents are providing the money and do totally. they want some protection on that and doing it in a way that was uh, 
efficient, uh, fairly straightforward. Like we're not we're not making this really complicated and looking at absolutely everything. We're just looking at at protecting that uh, nest egg that's going into to the house. And is there something there? And looking at a, a obviously a fee structure and a process structure that's clean, easy, um, that people would look at and say, you know, when they're you know they're already looking at you know spending money on a house. Obviously, if they're getting married, they've got you know, wedding expenses and so on, throw this into the mix, like, oh, my God, can we really afford this? At the same time, can we not? So we're trying to position it in a way where it, we're saying we're trying to keep it as light as we can. If mm-hmm. you want to protect this, like insurance, it's it's not a big deal. And at least for this part, and we're talking about, you know, in Toronto, if you're buying a house, what kind of down payment do you have to come up with? Insane. Insane. And so we know a lot of parents are are a source of some of that money and the parents I'm sure are also hesitant about, okay, how can we protect this? That's our, how our conversation started. And we're hoping, we hope that's our offering uh, in, in love and money. So it's not coming from a, I'm protecting like a whole big family yeah. you know, estate. It's just this little piece. So if I'm prepared to it's... spend money on insurance, yeah, is this not an insurance policy for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think making accessible is great. I think the tone is perfect. I love the protect the romance by dealing with the finances. Okay. I think that's, yeah, I think it's bang on. And I think it's so smart. It's a reason I will have one because I own my condo on my own and we'll be like, okay, before we do this, let's get it. And I know enough about the law to know without anything, it becomes a matrimonial home. We would own it jointly. Uh, so I would absolutely want that as an agreement. Um, I, I think it's it's a great approach. And I think the idea of a third party coming in almost as more of a consult is brilliant. You're already starting something confrontational. I think that's excellent. Yeah. And it's not the traditional also being like, oh, I got to hide my money for this. It's like, let's be clear and transparent. And, and we hope in, in, in looking at that, then again, it starts that conversation for that couple. Yes. Right? Yes. And if, if that conversation is difficult, if that triggers that conversation and maybe with a bit of our help or guidance just to have that conversation in a neutral way and in a loving way, um, that's a positive. And I liked what you said, too, about how you're finding that women are really open to solutions and different solutions and different pra- like if they're given a little bit of information. And I would think that's true of a lot of millennials with just a bit of information. Perhaps they're open to a wide range of solutions. Because many of us, I think, do see ourselves as on a different path financially than the traditional, yeah, married in university, buy the house, have 2.4 children, et cetera. Sure. Because I, I, I'm bringing a lot of assets, perhaps, maybe more than, than my spouse, uh, into the relationship. Uh, I mean, we're seeing women more as primary breadwinners. They understand that they have to share in terms of you know separation, divorce, but to what degree are they so concerned about... I took care of the kids. I built this business. I helped him struggle through his business that for no reasons didn't work out. You know, again, trying to find that balance. So I use the word balance a lot when I'm. When I well, we as we as a culture, by the way, haven't recognized any of that work as work. It's never been compensated. And by the way, all that work feeds into an office and it's like the way I see that is it's always, and I've been one of the only women in, in many office settings, many boardrooms, 
it's always looking over to the women to be like, well, you or you'll, of course, organize the holiday party. You'll, of course, oh, the table's a bit dirty. You'll do the cleanup. You'll do the dishes. You'll, we had a joke from our earlier one of careers, like men, there, it's from the office, but the temp male BJ Novak who wrote yeah. and, and plays in it says, I couldn't possibly figure out how to clean the microwave, Pam. Like, you know, I just wouldn't even know how to start. You're so good at it. It just feels like whenever there's the low, you know, low value, high energy, like high amount of work that's poorly compensated, like I, over and over again, I'm like, oh, you've put a woman in charge. Like women are in charge of these like committees that do nothing. Men are in charge of the compensation committee where there actually is rewards to it. Like, I just feel like that dynamic when you're like, it's not appreciated, of course, how could it be when when our culture doesn't appreciate it or pay, even like male chores, female chores, like, boy, well, you had two boys, so maybe no different, but boys will maybe get paid for mowing the lawn or maybe not. I mean, depends how the family structured or helping with some building or taking in stuff. And women won't necessarily get paid for taking care of their little siblings or for being that mediator negotiator. And then we come out being like, I'm not a negotiate. And you're so right. It's like, you've been doing that your whole life. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, bottom line in all of this, you know, when people walk into my office and I suspect when they walk into a lawyer's office and we'll say, well, I jump, I just want what's fair. Oh my God. Yes. And I, <laughs> I quickly tell them there's nothing in separation divorce that's fair. You know, we turn this around or I want, I want what just, I just want what I'm entitled to. Well, sure, that's really easy, right? If we if that was the case, then we wouldn't have I wouldn't have a job, right? Most lawyers wouldn't have a job. So I try and get very early on their thinking and what do you need to be okay? And so for you to be okay might be less than what you're entitled to, but if that allows you to move on with life, that you're not negotiating things forever, that you're not spending tons of money on additional legal fees, that you're not out to get them, right? Because you really don't want them to have the house. If I start getting them to think, what do you need to be okay? And however they define their terms of okay, as I, you know, and, and that's shocking for a lot of people to hear. No, Eva, that's so smart. I'm going to use that in my practice because it's true. We'll go through like a full thing of negotiation. I'll be like, well, as long as it's fair. And I'm always sitting there being like, I don't know, feeling like I almost want to just be like, yes, stamped. And I confirm fairness, like even salaries, even all of it. They're like, well, I just, I just, I just need to be paid what's fair. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not anything. <laughs> like, that's not that you're not, it's not fair for you to get paid less. Is it not fair? Do you get paid more? And now it's time for Money Wins. Money Wins is a way you spent, saved, or invested your money that feels like a win. So, Eva, do you have a money win for us? Oh, I think the money win for clients is is recognizing that they don't have to spend a lot of money getting a separation or divorce when they recognize that and they see that that can happen and they're open to that. Nice. And yeah, do you have one for yourself? With COVID, right? So we're sitting around home and we're looking around things. So I, I, I bought a lot of things for my backyard to make it look really nice. And we were installing. So we've got this nice white gazebo thing and I got new carpets and I've got white furniture. So I'm ready. To, I'm ready for the summer. That's, so that's a big my, win. That's my yeah. win. Good outdoor space. That's a win. Pretty outdoor space. Pretty outdoor space. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom. I'm really excited about love and money. Keep us updated on how it's going. I think it's a great service. 
Great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and Dividends podcast. Please subscribe, share, and rate us with five shining stars on iTunes. It really helps us rise in visibility to reach more listeners like you. To find out more, check out our website, loveanddividends.com, our Instagram, at loveanddividends, or email me, leslie at loveanddividends.com. This episode was produced by Holly Dodson. Until next time, I'm Leslie Gray, signing off with Love and Dividends.